When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Taking Care of Lady Business. I am Jennifer Justice. Today, we have the amazing, wonderful Camilla Marcus, CEO and founder of Westborn. Hi, Camilla. Hello. So glad to be doing this together. I know. Me too. I'm excited. I'm excited for everybody to hear all about your company, your pivots in life, which is so important as a woman how you're managing to do it all and what your plans are to save um, save our future and our planet. <laughs> so let's start talking first about what is Westbourne. So Westbourne is seeking to build the world's most sustainable packaged food company. Our goal is to connect the new climate conscious consumer with the new food system. We all know there is no planet B And we know that agriculture is the largest driver of climate change. About a third of greenhouse gas emissions are caused by how we produce our food. And as people want to consume food differently, as we want to gather differently, we want to be the powerful conduit between a conscious, elevated new consumer and these amazing mindful growers that are seeking to better use our land for a brighter future. And how are you doing that now? What is the incarnation of Westbourne at this moment? At this moment, we have about 15 products and we think about it. We want to be part of your journey morning, noon, and night. So we have pantry staples such as our avocado oil. Um, We have snacks like popcorns and granola, as well as condiments and uh, spices. So our pistachio duca is one of our top sellers. The goal is really across every level and across our entire supply chain from seed to shelf it's the most sustainable it can be. So compostable packaging, regenerative farming ingredients, organic ingredients, things that are superfoods to help you elevate and think differently about how you're snacking, how you're traveling on a plane, what you're cooking your kids for dinner, what you're enjoying on date night, and to hopefully help you see that the power of plants can transform our planet as well as your own health. So is everything vegan? Everything except for the granola, which we're working on. It's and very hard to make really delicious granola without honey. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we're working on it. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Well, I don't think a lot of people understand that, like, if you're not vegan or vegetarian, that honey is, you know, because it's an animal product, you know. My daughter has been talking about that, and she's like, I'm not sure if I can give up honey. <laughs> it's so- actually a much harder substitute than you originally think. Yes. You know, it's it's actually in a lot, and it has a very very distinct set of properties. Um, But there's actually a lot of companies out there that are experimenting with um, sort of alternative honeys. And we're thinking about how to do that with the granola. As long as it's not monk fruit, she's fine with it. She literally tastes that taste and is like, no, no, thank you. She can tell she's like, it's monk fruit, huh? (gasps) She's nine. It's very funny. Very particular. I love love your daughter. Super taster. I know, right? Um, She'll be working for you next year for your children's uh, line stuff. So tell us how you, the journey for you getting here, right? Because that is so important for women who want to start companies or like pivoting and hating their career, et cetera. Like, 
you know, it's not now it's not linear for the most part for most people. So let's talk about yours. I always say life is really like a jungle gym. It's not a racetrack. And Mm -hmm. I think unfortunately we're taught as kids that it is a racetrack. I think we're very much pushed into specialization and all the messaging that we get is like, be really good at this one thing and off you go. And you look at these stories. I mean, my favorite entrepreneurs are anything but, and they started with something small. I mean, you know, you look at Virgin, right? You know, Richard Branson, his book, Losing My Virginity is one of my favorite books, even Shoe Dog with Phil Knight, you know, Phil Knight didn't seek out to create the world's you know, one of the world's most amazing athletic wear brand. In fact, he really wanted to be an importer and it sort of happened out of necessity. He didn't even like the name Nike. I think we forget that things are very modular. It's sort of, I always say to my team, everything's brick by brick. We don't yeah. need to really worry about what the bridge is going to be. And it might be a swing. It might be a catapult. It might be a boat. And like the end might be a bridge, but you know, I think we have this very linear thinking in what we're told. So my path was really kind of all over the place. Um, I went to undergraduate business school. I thought I would double major in fine art. I'm a, I was a painter and a drawer when I was a kid. I was always very odd, even in school, because I'm very visual. I have a very strong, you know, right brain. And yet I was always two grades ahead in math. And I was very good at science, even though I wasn't passionate about science. Mm -hmm. To this day, my best class I ever took was accounting. I had 100%, which is like crazy because I actually hate accounting. And, you know, my dad was like, oh my God, you're going to be a CPA. And I was like, I'd rather die. Um, I was like, I don't want to do that. So I think that's also where it was hard for me. I don't think I was, I never... I wasn't the kid that like knew exactly what they wanted to do. And I even say now, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I mean, I think the road zigs and zags and, you know, a lot of my college roommates became doctors and I was kind of envious that they had this like calling, you know, in a, a given profession from such a young age. And I really am not programmed that way. So after undergraduate, I went to culinary school. I've always loved food. I figured worst case I'll make a mean Thanksgiving and I'll know what I'm going to do at home. And it would give me this incredible skill set. I really fell in love with the people, the mix of cultures. And it definitely is my love language, how I cook for others. And, you know, at the time I was sort of like, I don't know, no one really like worked in food in the same way that they do now. And so then the world crashed in 2008. I went to get a JD MBA. So I'm a, I always say a recovering not practicing, always practicing bar certified attorney, which in a lot of ways you can identify with and really hit out kind of in a JD MBA program because no one was hiring. I mean, most of my friends, we were fresh out of school. We had no experience. It's really hard to get jobs. So I thought, you know what, grad school, I'll hide out. I can work while I'm in grad school to build my resume. Went into investing in hospitality in hotels and then became head of business development for Danny Meyer at a pretty pivotal time in the company's history. Um, And while there, I think what I realized is a lot of my passion growing up was all environmental. When I was younger, I used to write letters, you know, about saving wildlife. I wanted to be a veterinarian when I was younger. I always was very passionate about the environment, the earth, protecting animals. And in fact, Early in 2008, I applied to the National Research Defense Council, got very flat out rejected for like any job. I was like, I'll work for free. I'll do anything. And they're like, no, you know, you have this weird business background, like, and why do you go to culinary school? What are we going to do with you? So while I was with Danny, I think I started thinking about food and climate and 
And also really connecting the conscious of consumers in that world. You see it a lot in retail. You see it a lot in beauty. Food always lags. And I just started realizing and connecting those dots of we make more decisions about food and beverage in our daily lives than anything else. Mm -hmm. And yet that's not where we're thinking about intentionality. We're so focused on the kind of glasses that we buy and, you know, our beauty products, but what about what's going in your body? You know, we're very conscious about our skin, but what about what we're feeding our kids and what our you know, what we're feeding people in our home. So that's where really the idea of Westbourne I think came about. And like I said, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Um, we think that we can really change the world with food and and allow people to be part of that solution, not just stressed by the problem that looms. But, you know, I'm ready for the zig and the zag. So I'd well, say my background is really like... Yeah, no, I love that. That pivot like and all those pivots, you know, make a lot of sense. And sometimes when you do look back of like what you were really passionate about, you're like, oh, okay, that does make sense. You know what I mean? Like I was always really passionate about gender equality without understanding that I was really passionate about gender equality. I wrote my law school note and got into law review about the equal opportunity and, and like welfare system and how, you know, these Republicans calling women on welfare, welfare queens. Well, I grew up with food stamps. Like that's how we ate. Like no yeah. one, we don't take them to make, eat steak. <laughs> like I still don't know how to make steak because I'm a vegetarian before I had any money. And then now that I have, you know, money and could, could buy the stuff, I don't even know how to make it because I became, you know, I'm, like started eating meat when I was pregnant with my kids. So it's just like, there's all these things that you, if you really look back and you understand like, oh, okay, I can put it all together and it makes sense going forward. But you also said one thing, um, you were saying that, you know, the conscious decisions about what we're putting in our, you know, in our mouths and our and feeding our children, you know, I think obviously whole foods and stuff, you know, things started happening where you would be more conscious about, you know, they don't carry Coca-Cola and Pepsi products and for a long time, not even Heinz and ketchup and things like that. But also what happens after you eat it, right? And that's what I think sets you apart is that your packaging, including down to the ink, right? On the packaging is compostable. Yeah. And our entire supply chain is carbon neutral. I mean, we want to be the most advanced. I mean, again, I grew up really idolizing Patagonia and how much integrity they put in every single element. You might buy a t-shirt and think, okay, great. You might be someone who just thinks it's a cool t-shirt, but there is so much intention and thought behind every step of the chain. And I would say it's perfectly imperfect. It's yeah. constantly in flux. It's constantly iterating, but we want to be that company for food where you really can trust us and, and understand that we're investing in the entire cycle in order to hopefully change the food system in the direction that we need. And aren't you missing one step about with the restaurant? Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my mom brain is on real, real fire these days. So after leaving Danny, I always say it was sort of my Trojan horse. I opened the first certified zero waste restaurant in Manhattan, um, all plant based. We never talked about being vegetarian, but that's just how we cooked. Um, sourced, you know, a lot of our sourcing partners that we work with now, a lot of the farms that we work with came from the restaurant and how we partnered with really mindful growers, makers, um, partners to really make the restaurant kind of an example of could we have 
a very climate conscious restaurant and experience and see if people were really ready for that. And unfortunately, we had a very tough landlord um, during COVID and unfortunately to close was not part of the business plan to close the restaurant, but it seeded, you know, seeded the oats that became the products. And we always dreamt of having products. Our goal, you know, we always made stuff in the restaurant to sell so that we could be in your home, right? You're only eating at a certain restaurant however many times a week, um, but we could also be in your home and on the shelves and wherever your journey takes you. So yeah, the restaurant, we miss it a lot. Yeah, I can imagine. But then that was kind of like a breeding ground for all the things, right? Weren't some of these products things that you actually used in the restaurant? So much of it comes from the restaurant and events that we did. We still do a lot of brand work, a lot of collaborations, a lot of gatherings, and we're always listening and taking that feedback and intake. So a lot of the recipes and a lot of the original intention comes from the restaurant menu. And I mean, one question I have is, you know, I know a lot of restaurateurs in New York City and it's very well known. There's not a lot of female chefs. There's not a lot of women in the kitchen. And a lot of people say it's about pipeline and lifestyle. Like, what is your take on that? So it's interesting because when I started, I had someone who was involved in our opening and, you know, part of the opening team and support group. And they said, well, we can't bill you as the chef of the restaurant. And I said, well, I don't understand. I went to culinary school. The concept is mine you know, it's very collaborative. I mean, this is one of the challenges I will say that come into restaurants. There's a lot of authorship conversations. There's a lot of recipe ownership conversations. And it's hard because, right, you use Google. There's a million people that play a part in that algorithm. You only really know the two founders. Does that make them not the owner of their company when there's so many people that participate in it, it's very hard, right? Like they can't be the ones that are originating everything. But it was interesting. I mean, I I had a very non-traditional career in restaurants and that person really got into my head. Like you can't call yourself a chef. And I said, well, I do cook. It is my concept. We have an amazing team that certainly is part of those creations. And I don't want to take any authorship away from that. But why does that mean that I also can't have authorship? And I do think there is a very strong gender bias. And a lot of it came down to, we are not on the line every single day. And I said, well, I have a family, I have very young kids. I can't do that. And I don't have a business partner. So it's not like I can be the person in the kitchen and someone else is running payroll. Like that can't be, I can't be 30,000 people, you know, and I said, that same person, well, I know a lot of big name chefs. When was the last time you saw them in their restaurants? Like, I'm confused. So I have to do X amount of years that you feel then validates me in that way, you know, and I let them do it. I let them sort of hide me in that way. And it took a couple of years for me to kind of change that narrative for myself and feel confident enough to do it. But it did, I look back and that's, I don't have a lot of regrets. I don't really live in that way. I think you always learn, but I think that is one thing that I look back on and and kind of lament that I wasn't strong enough to really like stand up for myself. Right. Well, I mean, it's kind of hard when you don't have people to look that have done the same thing too, right? You know what I mean? Um, and not only that, I said to someone even yesterday, there's a lot of now female focused food magazines, you know, those that are focused on diversity. When was the last time you saw a pregnant chef? Yeah. Like I have not seen in a magazine anywhere like with major public attention 
you know, we talk about it in the business sense, right? There's very few pregnant women. It was obviously a big deal, you know, for the CEO of Bumble to have her baby when they went public. There's just not a lot of those images. So even for me, in addition, having my young kids during this very intense professional time, you know, we don't have a lot of examples. Like most of us hide it for a very long time. I have a lot of chef friends who had kids around the time than I did. I decided to really be more public about it, but most were like, my team's going to quit. They're not going to think that I'm invested. They're not going to think I'm as hardworking. And also like, you can't work a 12 hour shift being eight months pregnant. Like it's just impossible. Or if you do, it's really not healthy. But again, that sense of then like, does that make you not a chef? Does it make you not an entrepreneur if you can't be up 24 seven? You know, I do think we have this like, intense hustle culture that's set by men and really yeah. sets women up to fail, especially moms. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah, yeah. Moms in particular and women. And if you don't play by the rules that are already set there, you know, what are you going to do? And, you know, look, one way you can remedy it if you can't be in the kitchen is to then be a, you know, buyer of all the products. <laughs> you know, it's true, though. It's like you can be the buy. Fine. You want to support women and the restaurant industry, then carry all of the products, you know, support all the products that women. And we talk about it all the time. I mean, every time there's so many of these like female focused investing funds that then host all their dinners at male-owned restaurants. And I'm like, you know, you're giving a lot of cash and you say you're pro-women. There's a lot of female-run and female-focused companies. Every time they do a partnership, it's a male brand. I'm like, I'm sorry. If we're really out there saying we care about women, that intentionality, you have control over a major purse in a lot of different ways. Whether, like you said, you're buying something for your home or you're choosing where to spend your marketing dollars I just don't see people like putting their money where their mouth is. To exactly. Be Walk the talk, right? Stop giving money to the men and be like, why am I not this, you know, equal? It's just, you can't do it. And say so you have to also look to your partners in your house, by the way. Like, are they out there? Are they out there in the women's march with you? Are you they out there in the abortion march with you? Are they out there buying women's products and but like and saying that you're equal? It's funny. I had I was having this. I was at this party not a lot long ago, and it was you know my kids' school's parent. There's a bunch of parents there, and I kept getting introduced as oh JJ and she's this big feminist. And I looked at them. I'm like, are you not? Like, <laughs> do you know the definition of feminism is the belief that men and women are equal? That's all it is. I'm like, tell me who is not one. Why am I the feminist and everyone else here? It's like, you all have daughters and sons, by the way. Why am I the feminist? <laughs> like, well, it was interesting. I was at Eve Brodsky's house, who does Fair Play a while back. And we were chatting because her kids go to my old high school and we were talking about things. And she said, you know, what I came to realize was the PTA, the people that are doing the work, volunteer positions, all women, and the board of the school was all men. Yeah. She was like, I just decided no more. And I was like, you know, that's so even at that base level, right? That's what we're teaching our children. That's the model that we're showing them that even school administration is segregated based on gender. That blew my, you know, it's things you don't think about. Like we volunteer our company. Yeah, exactly. Enough of that. Building the matriarchy, giving each other business, buying each other's products, 
you know, putting money in each other's hands. That's how we're really going to make a difference for us and our kids and obviously buying Westbourne products. So uh, tell us, so what's been that journey so far, like raising money and, you know, I mean, you're obviously very tenacious and, and persistent, you know, but there's obstacles no matter what, right? Even in a, even in an area that is, you would think more kind of gender by like gender bias toward women, you know, to understand it. You know, it's really fascinating because when you actually look at the numbers and the data, you know, household spend when it regard regards to food dominated by a lot, not like 52%. You're talking like 90% of decisions are made by women. The irony is most food companies are run by men. Mm -hmm. Most are run by marketing people. And financing is run by men. So the interesting thing is that there is this huge, I think it's massive. I feel it every day um, in countless ways. But it's interesting because if, like you said, if women could realize we're actually the ones that are more in control, right? Why are we funding companies that are marketing to women who really don't understand the demographic that they're pitching towards and have never lived in those shoes, What I think you see a lot is, especially early stage, I think it's really hard for women to fundraise early. Once you get to a series A or you show a level of sales, so many doors open. We even saw this at the restaurant. America is very unkind to small businesses. I mean, I will say this now to Kingdom Come. And I always say to people, I don't want to be a small business. Absolutely not. It is... At our restaurant, you know, I had 30 people working for us and the jewelry store next door that had the same footprint had two employees. I don't get any benefit. It's actually crushing to have that many employees. And I don't think 30 people is that small of a business. Right. In our country, once you hit 50 people, a lot of doors open. When it comes to fundraising, you hit a certain sales and you're big enough, a lot of doors open. It's hard to be small. And I think when you're small and you're female-led, it's even harder. And you know, I said we are still in the fundraising process. Our first investor, you know, thankfully for Zoom because it's COVID, no one ever met in person. I was nine months pregnant. I actually delivered my baby the day after getting our term sheet. And it wasn't until weeks into, you know, post close where, you know, I shared the news that I had had a baby and they were like, wait, you had a baby the day after the term sheet. And I said, but if you knew that, I mean, and they're the most amazing people and totally have my back. But I said, it's human, right? It's like, I tell friends, if you're pregnant, hide that bump and go get that job. If you yeah. tell them, they are not going to hire you. Why know, would they want so to sign up? They're just, it's sad. It's horrible. But unfortunately, that is still, I think, the world we live in. Like, you know, I was saying to a friend yesterday, again, you don't see pregnant women and like, you don't see women breastfeeding in meetings. Like, I'm sorry. I think a woman should be allowed to breastfeed in a meeting. She shouldn't have to leave and you need to get comfortable with it. She has the right to have a baby and not miss a beat. If she wants to leave the room, fine. If she wants to take extra leave, that's on her. But we have to normalize, you know, I've started, I started breastfeeding on some of the investor calls. I was like, you're pot committed. You're now in, and now I'm going to see what it's really like. And it's going to make everyone uncomfortable, but you know what? Like, I'm tired of having this old way that, again, just really prohibits women, right? The biggest time that you accelerate your career is in your 30s. That's also childbearing years. And I say to women, unfortunately, I hope this curve changes and that's where we're pushing towards. But the curve is a huge downward slope till you get over through the roller coaster. You have to dig deep. You will be losing money. You are investing in the fact that post 40, you're going to be a rocket ship. 
but it is brutal every step of the way. Yeah. And let's be clear, who's uncomfortable when you're breastfeeding? You know, I've seen it both ways. I'll be honest. Well, I think I I see it both ways only because they're like, oh my God, we could have done that. You know what I mean? It's all like, because I think you've been told for so long that it's like, you know, we have to make sure that men are not uncomfortable. We don't see it. I think it's just culturally, we don't see it. I still, I'm in this baby mom group. Every mother covers with the, whatever the gauze things. And I'm like, hello, we're all moms who just had the babies at the same exact time. Like tits out, give it to me. I don't care. Like we're all here. You know what? My husband laughs. I will. I have fed on Amtrak. I have fed in a security line. I have fed in the middle of a restaurant. I have fed in my own restaurant. Like I do not care. And I will tell you, like I did, I cooked at six events the month before my baby was born. I was very pregnant. Even then, the amount of people are like, I can't believe you're doing this. I'm like, I'm not dead. I'm pregnant. I, like, I don't understand why I'm supposed to like be in some tower till I look the way you feel that I should look. Like, yeah, they're no, no, very no, no, no. uncomfortable. That, just like me having the kids on my own. People are like, what? I don't understand. I was like, like babies are born in ditches in parts of this kind of, like the world. Like, you know what I mean? And they're fine. It's okay. Like our bodies are meant to do this as nature. And you know what? I happen to have some resources. So there's nothing that says a man and a woman or two parents have to be in any house. I mean, actually a man and a woman, because, you know, gay couples have the same issues. Like who's going to play the dead? Who's going to, you know, it's like so stupid. Becky, you, you want kids? You can have kids. You don't have to do it in any traditional way. And by the way, it's normal. It's like women can fall. People ask all the time, how do you do it? And I say, look, one, I really don't. It's a, roller coaster at our house 24 seven. Like there's no order. But with that, for me personally, and I'm sure you feel the same, you have to have a village of support. Like there's no moms are not 50,000 people. Just we seem like it. And sometimes we have to act that way. But, you know, I'm lucky. My husband, my partner is very hands-on. We really divide things and we're very clear with each other on like, we want to get out of parenting what fulfills us. We're lucky it's very different, the things that we enjoy. Um, but also like we have to help pick up the slack, right? If you're traveling for work, someone has to be with your kids. Like, like you know, people say, oh, how'd you do it? It's like, well, obviously I have help, a tremendous amount of help. How can I go fly to an investor meeting with three kids? Like, so, you know, I do also think this sense of, I mean, yeah. don't get me on childcare. Our leave policies, our lack of childcare, our lack of structural support, but it also stems from this cultural norm, like you said, of, oh, well, that seems impossible. How do we do it? It's like, mm-hmm. we think that way because we don't have structural support as a country. Yeah. I mean, it really does come down to women need more money. We need more money. We need to bridge the gender wealth gap. Once we bridge, which is we only, we have 32% of the wealth of men. And most of that is inherited from either your family or a divorce. It's not because we make it, right? So once we do and build our matriarchal system, like we've been talking about giving each other money, like if we control the purse strings, even though it's not our money, who cares? It's like helps other women. Um, And we just need, you know, once we have money and equal money, if not more, then we have power and we can make this world a better place. The only way to prove me wrong. And I think it starts with every woman thinking of themselves as the micro activist. Like, have dollars. I don't care how much you have. You have one dollar, you have five dollars, you have a lot of dollars. You still are the one that is at checkout. You are the one that decides where it goes. Right. And 
I do think that there's tremendous power in that, that I wish every woman would wake up to that and both. That and voting. Yes. Yes, exactly. Because, you know, this is where, you know, what comes out. Um, we want to get in that. We'll get in a whole other situation on that. <laughs> That's episode two. <laughs> All right. So so in Westport, obviously, you had the restaurant, you start the pantry stable company. And then when it came to just, you know, for like a few minutes, like talk about like how you figured out all this packaging stuff, because a lot of people say they're doing it. They're not. A lot of people are trying to do it. They're not like it seems like something that's so daunting. You know, you don't want to get all this plastic when you get when you buy stuff for your kids, even regardless if it's Whole Foods or Air One, you know, I think for me, I just look at it as a growth journey and something I always say at our our team saying is it's a constant work in progress, like that we're constantly going, oh, it could be better. It could be different. It could be cleaner. It could be even more um, biodegradable, right? Like we're constantly thinking about it. I mean, I probably take three meetings a week related to packaging, new sciences, new compounds, new manufacturers, a lot aren't food ready. So again, I told you food always lags because it's so heavily regulated, right? right? I send you a shirt. That's very different than something that's going in your body. There's a whole layer of regulatory red tape that is required for that. So my hope is that I always, you know, as a team, we always know the landscape of kind of what's percolating, where the research is going what's going to come down the pike so that we can hopefully be amongst the first, not the only, you know, that I get a lot too. Oh, you're the only, it's like, well, no, none of these businesses could survive if we're their only buyer, by the way, like right, that's not yeah. one either. sustainability is meant to be communal. Like we're only going to change the world if we're doing it together. We want to move the tide this way. So it really comes down to curiosity and research. And I think just you know, I always say for better or worse, I'm the youngest of three. I have two older brothers. And like, if it's more challenging, if you tell me no, if it's more complicated, yeah. I have to do it. That's yeah. just like, I, I like have to scratch the itch. That's very much my personality. Um, I'm a maximizer, like to the nth degree, but it is just about, I think being obsessive in the research in knowing what you don't know. And it, and us wanting to just constantly move the needle. So every step of our supply chain, you know, we do a quarterly audit. And like I said, with the packaging specifically, I'm on so many calls every single week trying to fact find. And once you raise that flag, a lot of people come to you. So I get a lot of people that say, oh, randomly came across Mm -hmm. this company in Europe. I don't know if they're doing something in the States yet. Will you talk to them? What do you think about this other company, they're doing it in Mexico, but they might do it in the States. And, you know, once you kind of raise that flag that you're doing it, it's been actually amazing how much of that innovation information has come to us because we're, we're the weirdos in the thick of it saying, you know what, we want to put together the thousand piece puzzle in a way that no one else can. Yeah. Yeah. And so tell us about what's coming up after. I was going to say, and the the saying is true, right? Like if it was easy, everyone would do it. So if you're doing something that feels hard, you're probably on the right path. Yeah, exactly. You know, when I know when women always are like, oh, what do I need an NDA? I want to have this idea. It's like, you just got to put it out there. Like 
for you to be able to get as far as you did and the research and the idea for somebody to copy you, it takes a long time. Like it'd be very difficult, you know? And if, so what if they do competition? I just had Kara Golden in for a hint and she was like, that competition helped inform so much about, you know, proving we had a great concept. A, it helped to find the category and legitimize us more, but also like we were the better products at the end of the day, you know? And so it's, it's great. And then, so tell us what's coming out. I, I know one of the stories about your packaging and your pancake mix that you couldn't like use because the same packaging. Tell it, what was it exactly? So we just released um, a line of baking mixes. So we have a pancake and waffle mix, a muffin mix, um, as well as a pie crust, all gluten-free, regeneratively sourced and compostable packaging carbon neutral when it gets to your door, all meant to help you again, connect to regenerative farms and also hopefully make baking at home, which I always think of baking as a method of activism, right? Bake sales are a big community anchor for how women traditionally got the word out on things, galvanized fundraising. I think of baking in that way. So it was sort of a a powerful product line that I felt very passionate about. And again, naturally gluten-free, no binders, no chemicals, superfood ingredients. And the packaging was interesting. We had to move to a compostable craft paper, not clear or opaque like our traditional packaging because flour releases gas. And so it was actually exploding the fire packaging. So we spent the better part of a year playing around with and iterating on a bag that could work, right? You normally get your flour in a plastic bag that has very different components or you get it in a paper bag that has very different components. So again, one of the benefits and also the wild things about what we do is we're often the first, right? A lot of our partners have never worked with this kind of materials. They've never used it in the way that we're doing it. So it's the first and we have to be willing. I mean, we're going to be doing a big social media campaign around it, but sharing again, if we want the world to be better, we have to be open to perfectly imperfect. It might show up exploded at your door. And you know what? We'll tell you how to compost it. We'll tell you how to get, you know, upcycle it, but know that that's part of the process. And again, if it was perfect and seamless, I would say for, I used to say this at the restaurant, people would be like, why isn't there a sign for this? And why can't I use my phone for this? I'm like, I want you to talk to a person. Like human life is about talking to a human. It is about friction. Being human is a friction filled experience. And that is what makes us human, not robots. If it was totally perfect, then we're robots. And that's what we're used to because we're used to an industrial food system. And that has improperly trained us to think that things are perfect squares. We're here to train you that if it exploded in your package at your door, you're doing it right. We're here to help and let's work together. Yeah. It's like since COVID, there's shelves that are empty still, you know, you go to Whole Foods, like, there's no bananas. Like what? I remember like I'm not having grapes for a while. I was like, what is going on here? You know, it's like, um, but it is what it is, right? And I think it's good for us. We were a little too spoiled. Um, one thing just for people, I like, I like to be, you know, obvious about stuff. For people who are not who are just learning about this area of sustainability, what is carbon neutral? So carbon neutral is we purchase carbon offsets. So through projects that basically take carbon out of the atmosphere, we invest in those projects so that everything that we're right. If something gets to your door, there's a carbon emission related to it. It is a thing that is getting to you in transit. What we do is from sourcing all the way to when it gets to your door, we've assessed our carbon emissions and we are purchasing and investing in projects that take carbon out of the atmosphere 
that equate it to zero. So we've emitted carbon and then we're investing in projects that take carbon out of the atmosphere to make it carbon neutral. What kind of projects are those? So ours right now is in California. It's in the Redwood Forest. Um, So it's called the River Garcia Project. Amazing. And they're all over the world. I mean, there's a million types of projects that people can invest in and they need the capital. I mean, one, they need the capital, but two, it's a great way to create circularity in your business. I love it. Amazing. Thank you so much for all of your time today. And as all of, as I ask all my guests, I have one last question for you. And that is, what is the worst advice you've ever received? Oh, um, (laughs) I'd say two things. One, um, I don't know that it's advice, but I have been told so many times, you don't have the experience. You didn't do the path. You know, I worked at a private equity business and I never went to banking or consulting. You know, I think constantly throughout my career, I was told you didn't do the path. Your resume doesn't make sense. You don't have the experience. What are we going to do with you? Have confidence to sell them on your grits, sell them on your skills and know that you can learn anything. And no one really knows what they're doing. I like wish someone had told me younger, no one knows what they're doing. At least try it. You're going to learn something and don't be afraid of uncharted waters. I think think that got into my head many times before. Because Mark Um, Zuckerberg and Adam Newman were so experienced when they started their companies. Well, and that's kind of my second, you know, I've been told so many times, just bootstrap it, just bootstrap it. And I think that's sort of the ism that's told particularly to women it's really hard to win in this day and age bootstrapping. Like I said, it's very hard to be a small business. That doesn't mean for a little bit, but you'll see guys don't do that. They go in with a deck and they raise a lot so that Mm -hmm. they can actually have the bandwidth to actually test things. You are going to test it. It is going to fail. You're going to explode some bags and you're going to figure it out have the confidence to say, you know what, I could bootstrap it, but I don't want to because I want to be big. I want to compete on a bigger scale. My business slash life coach always says to me, she's like, just think about the things in your life that make you feel small and get rid of them. Yeah. Be big, feel big, think big, regardless of what you want to do in your life. Even as a mom, don't do the things that make you feel bad. Figure out how to arrange your life so that you feel big most of your days. Wait, what is it? Be big, what? Be big, feel big, think big. Ooh, I like that. Be big, feel big, think big. All right. Well, and on that, that I mean, I'll ha- tell you, but the happiest moment, it literally happened this morning. So we do no gifts for birthday parties. It's my son's birthday tomorrow. We always do donations to different organizations. And a friend of mine said, look, I know you don't like gifts, but I'm doing it anyway. I said, I really don't like gifts. We don't need stuff. And she got my son a remote control car, which is his first time learning that. He's very young. And he couldn't find the remote control. He was playing with the car and I found the remote control. So behind my back, I was running it and kind of laughing as it's chasing. You know, most kids, and I would argue sometimes this is genderized, would be like looking for the remote control where it came from. My son looks at me dead in the face. He goes, did you see that I'm moving it with my mind? And he honestly thinks that he ran the car. I have never been prouder. And that is think big, feel big, be big. I love it. That's so true. Oh my God. Thank you so much for this time. This was awesome. We definitely got some sound bites. I'm going to tell you that. Um, <laughs> but if people want to find you and buy all these products, which they should, yep. how can they do that? 
at camilla.marcus at westborn w-e-s-t-b-o-u-r-n-e westborn.com um slide into our dms send us messages and yeah our website has it all amazing all right, everyone. Thank you for listening to yeah. this episode of Taking Care of Lady Business. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Justice.